Season 7, Faith in a Fresh Vibe Podcast. I'm your host, Rohati. Coming at you from Treaty 7 Territory in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. This little ditty you're hearing right now, new intro and outro from Jesse Peters. Thanks, Jesse. Episode 2. I have a fantastic guest. Gina Thomas is in the house, y'all. Find her book, Separated by the Border. That's her latest, most recent, but she has a new project on the go, talking about abundance. That one is coming, no date yet, and we talk about it on the last 10 minutes. This is about an hour long, so take it off in bite-sized pieces or the whole thing at once. We meet Gina. She shares a little bit about her family, her faith formation, what it meant and means to grow up evangelical, but also what she did when her faith and the world around her clashed. Her book is about an experience in the foster system, also connected to adoption. It's just a lot of processing faith when how you see and understand the world most importantly informed by relationships with people who don't look, think, act, or not even part of the same country as you, and how they inform us to imagine and reimagine a better direction for our faith tomorrow. That's faith in a fresh vibe. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Gina Thomas. For our listeners, we always begin with a sense of context. So we want to get to know you and also get to know the lands that you're situated on. So let's begin with that. Where are you and whose lands are you on? Yeah, I am located in Concord, North Carolina. It's right outside of Charlotte. And I am on the Catawba Nation lands. So... I was just looking, and this is going to, sorry, total tangent again, at some Twitter thing this morning about, uh, not dialects, what was it? Maybe it was dialects or accents and Mm -hmm. how like so much, all of Canada pretty much is the same. And then it's really close to, but so when, and it's always interesting for me, we kind of, I think, sound the same. Uh Uh-huh. At least in our, and so I'm thinking to myself, is that like a Carolinas thing? Uh, do, do we sound like it's definitely not a, a Minnesota thing? You know, I don't hear any of that. So do all the Carolinas sound like Gina? No, actually, they don't. It's probably, so I have a mix of um, like Western New York, because that's where I'm originally okay. from. Uh-huh. Um and then some like south will come out, like some like southern draw will come out every once in a while. So it might be more of the New York thing that hmm. we sound similar through. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. So down here, I don't have much of an accent, but when I go back to New York, I have an accent. So to them, or you, or you yeah, turn it to on to them. Oh, okay. To them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we have a picture of where well actually many canadians wouldn't be like oh yeah the carolina nope it's in the center somewhere <laughs> isn't it 
I'm the worst host. Yeah, just like right. make fun of where you're from, make fun of how you speak. <laughs> it's all good. It's like uh, <laughs> it's all good. Let's uh switch gears and and share a story about we contextualize faith in this podcast and so to capture a sense of yeah. your story um not necessarily so when did you come to faith and uh, at what age did you come to know Jesus we <laughs> want to just get an understanding of the key formative moments that have shaped and mm-hmm. placed you in the space you're in now yeah so um like i said i grew, I grew up in upstate new york um i am uh second or third generation italian depending on who you ask um but my grandfather uh came to the u.s um and then my mother was born was born here um and the italian family is catholic and so um there's a lot of roots in the catholic uh faith and church so i grew up Mm. going to catholic mass at christmas and easter um and that was kind of my, as far as the church goes, the Catholic church, that was really my only kind of intersection there. Um, but my mom, prior to um, all of us kids being born, I'm, I'm one of three, she had decided to become a Protestant. And so that was a big deal in the family. And we are the only Protestants. Hmm. Um, and so there was kind of this like large what felt like a kind of a barrier uh, between faith because I remember growing up in evangelical Christian culture and hearing things, whether implicit or explicit about Catholicism. Um, And actually I was hearing some of this from your podcast recently with Omar. Omar. Yeah. Yeah. That guy where he, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Where he was talking about um, just kind of how, growing up it was like we had to separate ourselves from catholics so like Mm. in order to be like Mm. pure good evangelicals um you didn't do what catholics did and so it was it was interesting to be a part of you know a church family and community that had that mentality but then also be a part of a family that was catholic um and i remember um I, I used to have conversations all the time with my great aunt and uncle. Uh, they were twins, and my uncle was a priest, a Catholic priest, and my aunt was a Catholic nun, is a Catholic nun. And we, at our family dinners, like we would sit and we would just hash it out theologically. And it was so awesome and so good. And they were so Christ like in so many ways that I knew deep in my heart that there's no way this can be the reality of what's being taught to me at church. My my great aunt, who's still alive and going, um, she has always, um, well, both of them had always uh, invited people who didn't have family to come to family dinners, people who you know didn't have anywhere else to go on Thanksgiving to join us. Um, and so they were always looking out for those on the margins. And my aunt is still doing that now. She started a, uh, a homeless shelter, uh, an open door homeless shelter. So they never say no to anybody um, in Rochester, New York. And so that lifestyle, that example 
was always in front of my face. So anytime I think that I had the temptation to kind of believe the brainwashing that was there, it wouldn't stick, it wouldn't hold up. So, yeah. um, so there's, there's formation in that, and that I absolutely loved going to church. I, we were there all the time. Um, we were, uh, there was a Christian school attached to the church. So we went to school at that school. I mean, we were there just, it, it was, I knew that building as well as I knew my own home, but I also knew that there were things that didn't sit right um, with me. And so, yeah, but I, I never remember a day without Jesus. I always, always felt like Christ has been in me and a part of me, regardless of what I'm going through or where my faith sat or any of that. Um, and so I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, when I moved from, we moved around quite a bit when I was in middle school. And when we finally landed in North Carolina, we continued going to an evangelical church. And then I was part of like the Bible club at the public school, like all the stuff, right? So um, in college, it's part of like the Christian clubs there and just always questioning and wondering like, what does it mean to be like Jesus? And so what's interesting about, I think about some of this, some of these discussions around uh, deconstruction is that I kind of view it a little bit differently than I think most people do. And I think you certainly do too in your, in your book, which is just a wonderful expression of, of what faith can be. And I'm so excited for it, mm -hmm. is that deconstruction to me is just asking questions about our faith, right? Like, mm -hmm. What, it, what am I being taught that's not actually Christ, right? What am I being taught that's not, you know, bringing people in, that's pushing people away? What am I being taught that's exclusive and not inclusive? And I feel like I've been asking those questions my whole life. So it's not mm -hmm. anything different necessarily, except that now it's on a greater scale and maybe mm. more socially acceptable um, mm. and maybe actually like kind of all of us in this, at least I feel like in our generation are like, what were we taught that wasn't right? And what can we hang on to? And what do we need to let go of? And mm. that seems like a very natural thing to do with anything we believe or yeah, are taught. Healthy. Yeah. So. You used the word loved to describe you loved going to church. Was that foreshadowing where you're at today? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I think the community of people seeking what it means to have faith has always been something that I love. I've never stopped loving that community. What is hard right now about going to church, and I do attend church, and I'm grateful for the one that I get to attend because the pastor is someone who holds open hands when I bring questions to him um, about faith, and not all pastors do that. Um, I think the challenge about loving church right now for me is that I want to see Jesus at church, and I think the Jesus that I know and the Jesus that I don't know, the one that I want to know. And unfortunately, so much of what is being portrayed at church 
is a Jesus that people have made up, have made in their image. And that's mm. not the Jesus I want to see, or nor do I want my children to mm. view mm. when they go to church. Hmm. So you described your, <laughs> what was going through my mind as you said you were in the um, Bible club, maybe it wasn't Bible club in yeah. high school. I'm like, yeah. you all had a Bible club? Um, we did. The, uh, and then continued into college. Mm-hmm. Was there a moment where things started to get bumpy along that ride? Yeah. I think the big moment for me was in, was not until 2016. Is that when Trump, when Trump came into Mm. election cycle and, um, and I like from, I mean, he started, you know, going around the country before then. So whenever he started that process was when, um, I just, I, I was just amazed over and over again by friends, Christian friends who were eating up what he was saying. We had, my husband and I had previously lived in Mexico. And one of the first things that Trump said was he was talking about Mexicans. And our hatred for what he said and our anger about it um, didn't have anywhere to land in our community here. Mm. And I was befuddled by what felt like a veil. Um, I mean, it still feels that way. Um, and so it was, it was during that process where we left a church that we were a part of for a long time after kind of realizing that, you know, the people who were forming us and people who we were forming, people who we were all like, you know, on this faith journey with had such very different perspectives of power, privilege, Mm. economics, (laughs) hatred Mm. for people who were other than them. Mm. Um, And kind of along that, around that same time, we started having some deeper conversations with friends of color of ours who were at the same church and kind of hearing how they were being treated and just realizing like all of this stuff kind of coming together. And it's like, this is not, this is not where we need to be. And so we kind of went through this process of, because that was what Christian Christianity was around us, especially here in the South, in the Bible Belt, there were, the, there were several times where we were like, are we even Christians anymore? Can we even call ourselves Christians? Because every mm. Christian that we know around yeah, us yeah, yeah. is not what we thought they were. So yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think it was that, that it was just like, wow, like we are being formed by Christ, I thought, but no, we're not. Like, this is not a place where the Jesus that I know from Scripture is more important than the powerful person that will get you what you want. So, yeah, I think that was probably the biggest moment for us, for me. It's certainly a factor of Christian culture, but especially poignant in states or regions that are still quite Christian, at least by affiliation, Mm -hmm. that everything Mm -hmm. around you, even if it had a different name 
or even a little different denomination, that it all yep. came in the same size. It all came in the same sort. Yep. It was all yep. the same. It probably sang the same songs. Yep. And they yep. all certainly voted the same. Yep. And which I think is an indictment on to Christianity and contemporary yes. Christianity that looks the same is 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 yeah. if you all look like empire, then right. the whole thing is broke. Right. And if you aren't talking about empire at all. Yeah. Or you're wrong. in bed with empire. Just don't yeah. say that because we're we're working for our slice of the power pie. That's right. Ooh, That's power exactly pie. Right. Let me write that down. That's good. That could go on like a sweater with a picture of a pie. Okay. Yes. The more I talk I like about that. it, the less it sounds like it's a good <laughs> idea. A slice of power. Okay. No. See, I said it the third time and it's not as good. <laughs> but I'll sit on it. It's quite something that you would describe, which would have been yourself and your husband. Were, were you kind of in, in, your, in a silo? Was it just you two sort of kicking around? And also you mentioned some of your other friends in community, but was it just you two sort of processing? Like, holy crap, like we look around us, like what the hell? Yeah, so I would say there were definitely other people who were processing that um, to a different degree. I think us and alongside of our se several friends of color were just like what is happening right now like this is it's hmm. this is not just something to like process and then stay here yeah. and continue to yeah. do this thing and i think you know for some people it was just like oh this is just something that we have to like work through yeah and push forward on and we're like uh let's listen to both sides done. here and then we'll decide right why so i think this is Fascinating that you would name this because I would assume, maybe wrongly, that for folks who have grown up in the church, who've gone to church, now you've had the the gift of family that pointed you to the different mm -hmm. possibilities, mm -hmm. but why didn't you do what was probably easier and follow suit with the other folks who are sort of half-assing their questioning mm -hmm. and and just stay like like to to from your formation of your really your whole life up to that point mm -hmm. to come to a place where you said i can we, i think we're going to have to leave this mm -hmm. in a relatively short period of time is that is that mm -hmm. about right like yeah. like around trump so it's a short period of time like mm -hmm. how did you do that how? I, well, most people don't do that. That's wild. Yeah. I think the connection that we made with people of faith in Mexico, we lived in Mexico for four and a half years, the connection of faith that we made, or the connection that we made with people there would not let us mm. stay. Mm. What do I say to my friend? From Mexico who's saying why is your president calling us all rapists and you voted for him oh mm -hmm. no or mm -hmm. your church voted for him 
there is a sense of accountability that comes from the relationships that you built with people over time. And another reason is that I, I have questioned things all along. I've <laughs> probably show you some crazy emails that I had sent to different different church staff about different things that happened. One of them was HB2 bill or whatever that bill was in North Carolina about uh, bathrooms. Hmm. And there were a couple of other things. And it became very clear to us because we even sat down and had a conversation with the, the pastor and said, what, like, can you talk to us about these things? Um, but it became very clear that um, A, my questions were annoying. They weren't welcome. They were at first. And this is the thing that's interesting. Like what's interesting about, I think people who are deeply faithful and also questioners is that you arrive in a new spiritual space and you are like, kind of like gold, like, wow, you're like really thinking about stuff so deeply. You're mm -hmm. interested. Well, you in love theology. The Lord, yeah. like, <laughs> you love theology yeah. your faith is yeah. amazing like all this stuff yeah. but then there comes a point in time where mm. those questions are no longer welcome because mm. they are rubbing someone wrong mm. they are making people look in the mirror and think i don't want to think what i see in this question i don't want to mm. know the answer because i don't want to be iron sharpening iron i mean that uh, that's kind of how i feel about it is that most people, when you really think about it, don't want to be sharpened in the way that we need to be sharpened in our faith. And and so I think it kind of came to a culmination during all of this where it was like, they don't really care that we're here. I mean, it kind of made that clear in the, in the meeting. <laughs> hmm. um, we're not, at the time we were on welfare, so we weren't tithing much. Our tithes didn't mean much. Oh, geez. And so it was like, what is it to say yeah. no? Like you guys... You can go more trouble than it's yeah. worth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. like that story. And although the details might be slightly different, oh man, that's a story for of so many who have been yeah. run over. It's the theological yeah. version of Doctor Ra, who, and this would be used in the racialized sense. But when the the theological pet became a threat. Oh, yep. so good that you're searching. Oh, that's just, oh, what you went too far. Yep. So it was, in fact, relationships that became the informing attribute or what made the reality around you incongruent with your beliefs. Uh, it wasn't like a theolog. Maybe it was, you know, partially theological or thinking, but it was in fact the tangible connection you had with other people that pushed you. Would that be a yeah, I an accurate portrayal? Mm -hmm. When you said that, and I think a good, I'm uh, just processing what you said, and it's and it's so deeply meaningful that your relationships, you, you were formed, and, and equally, it was a give and take in relationships um, with your friends that altered your understanding mm -hmm. of your faith and where you could mm -hmm. sit. And the application to that 
through a number of different uh, topics, but I will think of one that is applicable to the most people surrounding COVID or pandemic life. And I was just reflecting as you noted the relationship piece and how that, and I was like, yeah, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. Because I think of all the folks where they hear, they might hear our story or they hear the story. No, no, a little bit more specific. Folks who've heard our story in this house of, of, of my partner and, and now suffering disabled because of long COVID. Mm-hmm. And, and people we have relationships with do not make any altering choice, are not impacted by that story. Yeah. That makes you question the tears of friendships, <laughs> to put it in yeah. a funny way. But it, it's sad. That hurts. Yeah, it is. It is because ultimately it's about mutuality, right? Hmm. Ultimately, if we really want to talk through, like, if we really want to level all these hierarchies that we've created in society, we do so through mutuality. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it's reciprocation, right? So if, um, if, for example, I were to say, hey friends in mexico who formed me spiritually and who you know were my neighbors and who cared for my child and who were patient with my with my spanish for the last four and a half years if i say to them look i know this guy is talking crap but he's just a politician He, he doesn't mean what he's saying right or i don't know i just downplayed what he said and um they had been standing up for my dignity Mm. in fact several of them Mm. had done things along the way in our lives in mexico that protected us from things that would happen for example we would drive to the big city and have someone uh have a mexican neighbor in the car with us because if we didn't when the police stopped us for Mm. no reason we would have to pay a bribe. These friends did different things and used their privilege to stand up for my dignity because they knew certain injustices were not okay. In the same sense, the mutuality here is to say, look, I don't care if everyone who is around me who says they're a Christian who whatever is saying it's okay for this guy to say what he's saying. He's talking about my friends and I will stand up for their dignity, not just because they stood up for mine, but because it's the right thing to do. And it turns into mutuality, right? It's how, how we stand up for each other is important. I like that. How we stand up for each other. I dignity was a word you used and how you give life to one another. Like, where is that? Like in many ways we, yeah, can identify, we can pinpoint, we can touch and see where the depth or where the substance is in those relationships or any relationships when, when we appeal uh, to the spaces or, or feel the aspects of what gives life. Right. That's right. Wh- why do you think we suck so bad at this? We, I mean, generally speaking, um, let's say we, generally speaking, contemporary Christians. Yeah, I think it's because of power. 
I really do. Ooh, like, ooh, okay. I, okay, hang on. I think it's because Let's of absorb that. Yeah. <laughs> um, we suck at mutuality or, or um, identifying life <laughs> yep. because of power. Okay, okay. This is your yep. next book, man. <laughs> okay, it just, you, that's yeah. a word, that's a word. Okay, lay it on. So part of the issue, part of the way, you know, the ways that we have to like cushion this word, this, this phrase white privilege, we have to cushion white supremacy, right? It's all of this stuff is based on power. Like if mm. we can come to a point at uh, me as a white woman, come to a point and say, society gives me a certain amount of privilege and power mm. simply because of my skin color no other reason than that it's not anything i deserve um then i can start moving forward and saying okay this is what it is it is unjust and i can move forward with that and say in order for me to stand up for the dignity of others i first have to recognize what privileges i've been given because if I don't do that, then what I'm saying is all of our dignity in society's eyes is the same. That's not true. Mm. All of our dignity in God's eyes is the same. I 100% believe that. But just because someone is deserving of Imago Day does not mean that they are treated in that same right. Yes. They're not given we, that. Yes, That's right. And if we don't recognize that then all we're doing is platitudes we're not actually creating mutuality we're not actually creating equity we're not creating equality we don't actually believe in equality we just mm -hmm. say that we do oh, oh boy that's such a good word gina i don't know i think i feel like a lot of folks on the podcast will be thinking of of what you said but would be nodding their heads and I think those folks now need to send the episode to the people in their lives who need to hear that word, because <laughs> you just don't get there on your own. And, and the danger, the fear I have in many respects is because our relationships, especially for white folks, are so segregated that you don't have, like Gina had four years in Mexico that so many don't have the the connection the substance with other people that would lend them to the to just those possibilities of a different world and a more yeah. liberated world yeah. Whew, that's good Hey, don't forget, if you are enjoying Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast, don't hesitate to like us and share us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot. Let's jump back into our conversation with Gina Thomas. Because white people aren't the focus of my book, but I did expand it to include white folks by shifting the narrative to include everyone who considers themselves marginalized by um, the contemporary church. Yeah. I wanted, I didn't want to do a ton around whiteness. Um, but it was inescapable. But still, it was only, right. I think, like a couple paragraphs. 
Yeah. So the quote says, white exclusivity isn't necessarily evil, but it is woefully incomplete to develop an understanding of what it means to be Christian in a modern world, which goes right along what we were saying. That should lead us to confront a Christianity condoning these activities and ask which traditions cause or caused harm and which ones produce life. That question stretches beyond religious thought. Whose gaze determines what's right extends into every cultural pipeline. Have you interrogated whose gaze gets to determine common norms pertaining to health, wholeness, beauty, spirituality, and virtually everything we share that makes us human? Woo! That sounds okay. That's good stuff. It's, it's kind of smart. Yeah. Should put it in a book. That <laughs> It's kind of weird hearing that because I'm like, geez, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it's um, good. You wrote it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you uh, for – that's a good segue, man. Whew. Um, okay, I don't want to leave the mutuality and the – uh, notions of dignity. I asked you the question of why we suck, <laughs> why we suck at it, and uh, yeah. yeah, love the the re response. Okay, so um, easy to say, emperor has no clothes. Right? How can we cultivate deeper? Mm -hmm. uh, this will be your third book, then. No, you have a book before, separated by the border, right? Yeah. 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 Okay, this would be and, your fourth book then. Yeah, so one of the one of the quotes that I go back to all the time is from um Paulo Freire who wrote he's a mm -hmm. Brazilian theologian and wrote mm -hmm. Pedagogy of the Pressed. He says in that that no human, no one can be authentically human if they are preventing someone else from being so. Mm. Mm. And I think that that ties mm. back into this aspect of dignity and that if those of us who have privilege and the different ways that we have privilege, right? So whether that's if you're straight, if you're white, if you're a man, like all this stuff, right? All the different privileges that we have, if you're educated, if you have money, all the ways, if you're a theologian, <laughs> um, in all the different ways that we have privileges in this world, if all we are doing is kind of throwing stuff down from the different rungs, I, I just have this vision always in my head of rung of humanity, right? On, on this ladder, this ladder of humanity, and we're all kind of on different rungs of it. And that's not how I want humanity to look like, but that's how it does look like. And if all we're ever doing is throwing stuff down to the people below us, we are still, we are preventing our own humanity from being authentic hmm. as much as we are preventing anyone else from being mm -hmm. authentic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what whiteness perpetuates. And as Christians, what we have to be battling on a regular basis. It's a decentering of power. Yeah. Power is the roadblock to wholeness. Well, that's a good tweet. Yeah. That's good. That's really good. Say well, you again. said it. Power is the roadblock 
to wholeness. That that's that's Paolo. Yeah. To Paolo. Gina. <laughs> and then Rohati put it on a sweater and sold it. <laughs> like they broke along, it. <laughs> along with what is it? The power pie. <laughs> the power pie. Yeah, that'll be on the front. <laughs> Power yes. pie. When you said it, it sounded a little bit better. <laughs> we'll work on it. That's okay. We'll get there. Power is the roadblock to wholeness. Yeah, okay, that's at least a tweet. I might even get the typewriter out for that. That's so good, Gina. There you go. So, good. oh, okay, people will pause now and then we want to switch gears away from the, I think, very formative reflections that you offered surrounding power surrounding what it means to draw in deeper into relationships man i wish i had more of those like what what it's so hard it's hard but it's also like and this is the cynicism in me thinking of it's easier for people especially christians to tow party line mm -hmm. to just stay complacent to mm -hmm. stay within the the safe confines of the church walls mm -hmm. but freedom ain't there or maybe we're the baddies yeah we are to some people <laughs> yeah. so you spent four and a half years in mexico is that right but you also mm -hmm. were around other spaces other countries i feel like it's guatemala um Close. at some honduras. point honduras ah i knew mm -hmm. that <laughs> Darn. Way yeah. to do your pre-work row, Hattie. Um, <laughs> and so in this moment, so 2018, when did you write mm -hmm. the book? So 2017, you're talking about your, 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 the catalyst that is pushing you away from the church world that you knew. When does the yeah. book idea come through? Yeah, so it was twenty. It was later in twenty seventeen when we signed up that to year. be foster parents. Yeah. Yep. Okay. It okay. Was okay. October. Draw us through the story well, as if I've never read it before. Okay. So, um, Andrew, uh, my husband, we when we were in Mexico, we were trying to adopt. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing really worked out. Doors closed, and um, at the same time, I was studying international development through Eastern University. Um, and I started kind of through that program, started kind of asking questions that I didn't know that I should have been asking, some of which were, why do I want to adopt in Mexico, but I have never thought about adopting in the United States, um, in my home country. I've always, I'd always thought about adopting internationally. Um, so when we were in Mexico and the doors closed, uh, I started thinking about it differently and thought, maybe this is good. Um, they have some pretty strict rules there where uh, you, it really needs to be Mexicans that Mexican children go to, which I think is really important. Um, and it's not to say that no American can adopt, but there were other, other factors to that too. And so, um, so I was grateful for that experience. And then when we came back to the United States, um, which was in 20, the end of 2014, 2013, sorry, um, started kind of looking into, okay, well, what is adoption like in the US? And then started researching the foster care system and, um, and 
kind of that whole process and then started questioning things like, why do I want to adopt? Mm -hmm. Why, um, why not foster? Why not, um, kind of be a safe space for a child to be in while parents get stuff situated and figured out and then they can bring the kids back. So, um, all of that kind of led to us becoming foster parents in, um, October of 2017, we were placed with two girls and, um, yeah, so then it was February of 20, is that right? 2018, February of 2018. Um, we got a call from a social worker saying that there was a girl who they had in the office who only spoke Spanish and they knew that, uh, Andrew and I both spoke Spanish. So they asked if we would take her in for the weekend. Uh, we were told that ICE and ORR, Office of Refugee Resettlement, would um, come and get her on Monday. It was Where a are you Friday. living right now? So this was actually right in the same area that I currently live, so Concord, North Carolina. Um, so we went, picked her up, brought her to our house, um, had her stay the weekend, and um, on Monday showed up to court, and uh, ICE and ORR did not show up to court. So that was rescheduled for the next week. They still didn't show up the next week. So then she was kind of turned over into foster care system. So um, hmm. Julia is the name that I've given her in the book. That's not her real name. Um, Julia was then placed in our home as a foster care, um, part of the foster care process. And then we were trying to figure out what happened to her parents because we didn't really know. We had different stories. Um, hmm. We were finally able to make contact with her mom, I think it was about 10 days later, and were able to then kind of piece together what had happened. Um, and what happened was, and so about the same time that we were placed with our first foster care placements, they were coming to the U.S. Um, from Honduras. So they were making their way up um, through Guatemala and then through Mexico. And at the Mexico border, they were separated. Um, Julia crossed into the U.S. with her stepfather and her mother stayed behind. Um, she was um, taken as a hostage by the um, smugglers that they paid to bring them to where they were. So when she came to the U.S., she came as what's called an unaccompanied minor. Obviously, she was not unaccompanied because she was there with her stepdad, um, but she was separated because the um, policy that, that everyone kind of found out about in 2018 was actually happening for a whole year before most people found out about it. So um, children were being separated forcibly at the border from like July 2017 till June 2018. Mm -hmm. And uh, nobody really knew about it until May or so of 2018. So she was separated, he was deported, her stepdad was deported, and she came in um, unaccompanied, which meant she then, then went to a sponsorship family. The sponsorship family that she went to was her stepdad's sister's home in North Carolina, in my county. So that's how um, she ended up in foster care here. Um, so we then kind of worked through for the next four months or so of her being with us, um, 
connected with a consulate, worked with social workers, had to get like a home study done because she's now in the foster care system and the foster care system has specific rules for what you have to do in order to get out, right? In order to be reunited with your, with your family. Mm. And those rules include a home study. So we had to get the Honduran consulate to get somebody to do a home study at her mom's home in Honduras for her to be released from here, mm. which mm -hmm. just seems completely convoluted if you really That's think about bonkers. it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it was um, in June when her, um, she was, uh, we got all the stuff together. She, her case was adjudicated and she was able to return to her mom, but it wasn't until July that we were able to get the Honduran paperwork because she crossed into the US without a passport. So we had to get something so that we could take her back without the Honduran government thinking that we were smuggling her back, right? So it was just kind of a crazy process. Mm -hmm. But all of that to say that the the book Separated by the Border is kind of a, um, a braiding almost to three different stories. So it's the mother's story, biological mother's story, Lupe, mm -hmm. Julia's story, little girl, she was five when she came to live with us. And then my story, because I had also spent time in Honduras and Mexico. And so it follows, it goes from uh, Honduras to Mexico mm -hmm. to United States, kind of all of us mm -hmm. and what happened to each of us during those, in those places. So, yeah. And that's what it made it like that. This was, <laughs> um, it's the wrong time to laugh, but this is the, <laughs> when we think of Christian books, and um, Christian books that could be turned into documentaries or movies, like actually uh, <laughs> yours, the way that the narrative shifted between countries and mm. uh, settings that I thought was gripping. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. You know, earlier you had asked like what kind of these moments of, of um, our faith that is yeah just these like catalyst moments of yeah. big faith moments and i think yeah that uh this story certainly did something to my faith in the mm -hmm. sense of um you know the story of, of jacob wrestling with god and walking away with a limp i think this mm -hmm. this story with my limp mm -hmm. um there there are a couple of moments where the um angst of christ on the cross wondering where god was i have never felt that angst before this story Ooh. you'll have to engage in to the book to capture for listeners more details and to be wrapped into the narrative separated by the border a birth mother a foster mother and a migrant child's 3000 mile journey that came out at the end of fall 2019 or the fall 2019 um I want to ask what the reception was because I think in the evangelical especially the fundamentalist world that's um that's 
pro-immigration it's uh, <laughs> p- paying attention to you know real stories uh right. rather than vilifying and creating a character that is uh not true i i got the sense yeah. but before we get there i got the sense as you as you were writing uh, also as you were sharing today but also through the book um, the tension that you were rolling through in terms of of adopting and the space, like what when at first when I read it, it's like, uh oh, um, <laughs> the white people are at it again. Yeah, uh, they're going to go save. Yep. They're going to go save a, a little Mexican child. Uh, yep. Even though that child's from Honduras, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, right. it's like so. There was there That's was right. an element I think of of uh, that I read through. I felt of uh, the interaction and the tensions of white saviorism. Yeah, I, um, I, don't, I don't think you. So, and correct me if I'm I'm wrong. Sorry to cut you off. That you you don't center the narrative of the book around that, but I got a sense that that you were processing aspects of that throughout, without in fact. I don't know if you named it as white saviorism, but uh, I, I had that sense that there was also a a, um, a shift that was happening. Yeah, for sure. And actually, I do think I'd name it at the beginning, at the, in the introduction. Um, yeah, so here's here's my, my biggest problem with, with foster care and adoption. Hmm. Instead of caring for a family, because every child comes from someone, we can easily turn it into white saviorism because it's a child, it's a dependent. And instead Mm. of uplifting the family and working to the family's wholeness, toward the family's wholeness, what often ends up happening, and this is certainly not always, but what often ends up happening is that it's just to focus on the child. And I think it's easier to focus on the child and it sounds way better to just focus on the child because again, going back to that power, mm-hmm. we, as adults, we inherently have power over children. Hmm. But if we contend with family, and I've and, and there is quite mm. a bit of international work right now being done around family strengthening, and I'm very grateful to hear this happening. I think it needs to happen more often. But in order to contend with our own power and privilege, we have to rub up against this idea that we are not upholding the dignity of the parents. Mm. Mm-hmm. We are actually just possessing the child. Mm. And that is a very difficult thing to come face to face with. Um, As someone who has wanted to adopt since I was 16, it's a very tough thing to walk through and important just because it's tough doesn't mean it's not important, but that was a lot of what was happening within Mm -hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, she, Julia is Afro-Latina, and so she looks like she's black and mm. walking around, you know, going to the grocery store, going to McDonald's, 
with a child who clearly did not come from my womb um, was a whole different way of contending with white saviorism as well because hmm. it was visible. I have to name to commend that you have processed in relatively short amounts of time, processed uh, where is life in, in these forks in the road. Yeah. Were there uh, resources, people, you've, we've already named relationships that, that helped either alert you or become um, more cognizant of your place within the adoption slash foster uh, care world and world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, there were a couple of books that I read. One is called Till the End of June, and it's not a Christian book, um, but it's um, uh, Chris Beam wrote it, and, and she talks through this idea of possessing children, and that mm -hmm. if, if, in essence, foster children only learn at the end of their time with you that they, that they were a charity project, you have done them no help. And I think my own kind of wrestling, this this happened in my first book, A Smoldering Wick, between the idea of justice and the idea of charity really helped come to this position that I'm at now. Um, because it really, it really does boil down to that, is that are we doing justice? Or do we believe in a God of justice? Or do we just believe in a God of charity? Because think most of us hmm. act as if and believe mm -hmm. as if God is only a God of charity, not a God of justice. We wouldn't even name it as such. That's a, right. I love that distinction that you've made. We, we, we use the word justice, but to actually name that we would reflect a, a God of charity, of one-off, of whatever works for us um, or fits our world, that's different. Yeah. And then I would also say that, um, so the church that we are back at now um, is the church that walked us through this time with Julia and mm -hmm. she, she needed it because this is a church that has a lot of leaders of color, including the main pastor. And when she first came into our home, she was struggling quite a bit with her own skin color. Um, and so that was not necessarily something mm. that we could exemplify uh, justice in, <laughs> mm -hmm. in our own skin, right? So um, having people who got up on stage at church who looked like her, and, um, and even in the sense that there were a couple of leaders at that church who had previously done foster care, they were uh, in social services. So there were things, there were, there were intellectual things that they knew to flag for us that we wouldn't have known otherwise. Like, hey, she's triggered right now in this moment. What does that mean? And how do you work through that? Um, so it wasn't just their skin color and it wasn't just their positions of power, but it was um, several different aspects of it that I think brought healing to her that otherwise would not have been brought one of the other ways in which we step down from the ladder is we say that 
and, and recognize that we can't bring all the healing. Hmm. Like there, there's not or, one yeah. group or all one the family healing. that can bring all the healing, right? It, and the way you think it needs to be brought. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we want to trail off our conversation in two directions. One, we want to hear if you're working on any aspects of next book or next project. The other one is it's been six years now uh, and since since Trump, but six years of processing. Uh, we'll use the word deconstructing, although although that's don't have to like asking questions of what is the faith that grants life. Yeah. What does faith family look like are there broad strokes to paint of of what rhythm um looks like today in the matter that could be different than it was seven years ago yeah i think um currently i i would say that on the outside faith looks a lot the same in the sense of still going to church every sunday um mm -hmm. but um, on the inside, quite a bit has changed. And um, in fact, had you asked me this question two or three months ago, mm. I would not have been going to church every Sunday. So mm. it took us a while to, once we got back mm. um, to North Carolina, to return to church. And part of that was because, because of the machine of church. Yeah. <laughs> because there are questions and things that we wrap up in our identity and mm -hmm. our faith that I think is important to, to put under scrutiny every so often in the same way that, you know, we go to therapy or we go to a doctor, like let's scrutinize what our spiritual health is and is it where we want it to be? And like you say, is, is what we're doing and how we're going about this bringing life or not? Yeah, it took us a little while to to make it back, and it took us some conversations uh, with that same pastor, hmm. um, who is just a, a wonderful human being, and who um, I can say, hey, I don't agree with this theologically. And instead of saying, well, then you're not a Christian, or well, then like you can't come here, or you don't belong here, hmm. he's saying, tell me more. Mm. tell me why and then not looking at me any differently because we hold different theological views mm. <laughs> and i've had a lot of people look at me differently yeah. because i hold a different theological view and say you're no longer welcome in this space because of it mm. so to have that is a gift and yeah. i know not everyone has that would it be fair to say that in the space that you and, and your family and your partner are in, it, it's um, still figuring it out? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Does that give you a sense of relief? Or is that a sense of stress? I think, um, I think that's a great question. I, ideologically, I would like to say that it's always relief, but hmm. realistically, it's sometimes stressful. And the reason I would say that it's stressful most is because I don't necessarily mind. I like, I like now being and occupying the space of faith where 
I'm no longer looking for all the answers and I'm no longer, I guess I should say like idolizing answers. Cause I think I did that for a long time. I think I was formed to do that for a long time. However, when it comes to teaching kids about what faith is, um, there's definitely a part of me that fears, okay, when they go to church, are we going to have mm. to like, yeah. uh, debrief, <laughs> yeah, you know, you what was said or the different theological aspects totally. that we don't agree with? Um, and what yeah, is that going to look like? Yeah. So yeah. that's going to happen for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's trail off our wonderful conversation here with possibilities. Like what is, what is as a writer, yeah. what does the next creative venture look like for you? Or what does, especially in the midst of COVID, but what has yeah. your craft looked like? What are you cultivating now? What are you side hustling now? <laughs> um, obviously it's not sweaters with power pie. <laughs> No, see, that's like, nah, fourth time. This is good. You really got to put it to the test market. It's not winning. <laughs> so currently I, I have been, I should say, working on a book about God's abundance. Um, ah. Yeah. And so <clears throat> essentially this book has now taken three different shapes, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which is kind of funny because I, I heard like prior to, you know, this time in my life, I heard writers talk about books kind of reshifting and reforming and stuff. And I, I had never had that experience in the last two books that I wrote. Oh, really? Yeah. Not, <laughs> Lucky. Not in this, not Get in out of here. It's crazy. bigness. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so it's just, it's interesting because when I first started writing the book, it really was, um, but it's very theological. Obviously, you can tell in this conversation, I'm very theological, theologically minded. So it's juxtaposing this prosperity scarcity framework that we kind of all live and work out of mm -hmm. um, against this abundance framework that I think God kind of lays out for us. Um, and so, again, like juxtaposing the table that Abraham sets in Genesis 18 to the table that Jesus sets um, right before he dies and mm. just kind of seeing the difference between um, how we work, right? And how like God wants us to be and how he, how, how I should I say he, but mm. I like to say she too now and they, um, how God liberates us to uh, experience a table that we've never even fully comprehended. Mm. Um, mm. However, <laughs> what's interesting about all of this is there was this moment where I had to say, I'm not going to fit my writing life into the scarcity prosperity framework just to get this book on abundance published. What do you mean? Because scarcity prosperity kind of tells us you have to have all these things right like you need to sell more books you need to have a bigger platform you need to do all this stuff um <laughs> which is what that framework tells us all the time right you need to be better you need to be bigger you need to be all this all these things bolder whatever yeah. Boo. you need to be whiter right like all the <laughs> stuff you need to be more male um so there's oh, this darn. again that like hierarchy of of everything 
um, kind of fits into this framework. And I truly believe that if we operate in this framework, one way or another, we operate in violence. Hmm. And I feel like abundance hmm. is a framework that allows us to be what, what Paulo Freire was talking about, right? Like we can all be authentic humans and spur each other on to be more authentic humans only in abundance, not if we're always seeking the next high or the next big thing or the next whatever. Um, and so I had, um, I was looking for an agent at the time. This was a, a while ago and they were like, well, your platform needs to be bigger. This is a really cool, this sounds cool, but you, you need to have a bigger platform and yeah. all this stuff. They so would say that. Like, right. So there come, there came this moment where I was just like, nope, I'm not going to listen to these voices. I'm not going <laughs> to do this just to like yeah, publish this yeah, book. Yeah. Um, however, the reality is that, um, as a writer trying to make it in a certain, you know, to, to be able to be at a place where to write another book. And as you know, being a progressive right, Christian, right? Like there's this whole realm of like conservative Christian publishing world that is a lot bigger than the progressive Christian publishing world, I think. Mm. So um, all that to say, I'm, I'm working through new shapes of this and trying to, trying to believe it and live it out as I write about it. Uh, well, Gina, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and for granting us some some deep perspective around uh, power, around um, your story and your journey of processing faith and into new ways of processing faith. You also drew us into your book, Separated by the Border, and um, and your. The, the narratives, all the different narratives that you pulled us into and also learning aspects around foster uh, care and adoption. I'm so grateful that you're able to spend time and uh, lend your words on the podcast. Thank you.